0: And in your bulletin, you will also see that there is an insert about vision renewal. Uh, Last week, you were uh, given a draft copy of some values. And uh, so I just want to talk to you a little bit about the process that we're in with the elders right now. And uh, this is a process in which we are looking to renew our vision. It is good to revisit how we describe what our mission is, what our vision is for the future, and to dare to dream and renew that dream. And to ask ourselves maybe bigger questions than we tend to ask ourselves when we think about what we do in church, when we do church. You see, the question is, what does God want to do in Huron County? What does God want to do in Canada and the world? And what part does Huron Chapel have? In this? What part do you have in this greater mission that we are called to? And so that's the process that we're engaged in. We know that the scriptures teach us that God expects us to dream. In fact, Acts 2:17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. What is this dream that God is giving us. And it is good to think about this. And Let's understand that we are not somehow inventing the dream. We are rather given a pretty clear indication of what our mission is in the Great Commission. But like an athlete who trains to win an event, the athlete does not decide what the nature of the event is. We... uh, have, for example, the 100-meter race, and the athlete does not decide, well, I want to make it a 94-meter race. You run the 100-meter race. So we're not called to invent a dream, but to fulfill a dream, to run the race that God sets before us. As Paul said in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And so what is it that God has set before us? It's the Great Commission, which is to make disciples. And we cannot make disciples unless we are prepared to be living seed planted in the world. Okay? The Lord Jesus, in speaking about himself, states really a fundamental principle that all you farmers know, that all you gardeners know. Okay? The hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And is that not our dream, our desire to see that? We are to be the good seed. Now we know the parable of the sower really well, but in that same chapter there is the parable that is called the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the wheat and the tares, or the, uh, it has other names, but in any case, please note what the Lord Jesus says, that the seed is not the word of God in this parable. The ones who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man, the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. That's the good seed. Sons means heirs of the kingdom. We are the good seed. Look around. We are the good seed. Now, you all know that if you don't get the seed into the ground, it's useless, right? You might have a barn full, but it is useless unless it is planted. The Lord Jesus, using another metaphor, says, we do not put our lamp under a basket. Why? It's pretty useless. You see, I am being sent by Jesus to bless others and to invite them to follow him. This is saying number three in the way of Jesus, and this is central in how we are good seed in the world. Uh, we had some uh, remarkable testimonies of the history of Huron Chapel at our seniors gathering uh, on Thursday. And we heard about uh, Pastor Karn that many of you are familiar with, and that uh, he had an approach which really resonates, you see, that when he wanted to reach out, he found somebody to help or somebody that would help him. In other words, he would engage, you see. And so this is what we're about. This is, by the way, why I encourage you all the time to learn a new name. So if you are going to say, turn around, shake hands, learn a new name, because this is where we practice getting to know one another. So why is the status quo not good enough? We may feel pretty comfortable in our uh, own congregation, but let's understand that God has a purpose for Canada. we just were singing about that, right? You remember singing about that? Or were you an autopilot? (laughs) And you see, we have gone from 25% of the Canadian population in 1900 to about 10%. That doesn't sound like it's going the right way. From 1 in 4 to 1 in 10. That's a 60% decline in a little over 100 years. And so we have a task. So we can't be satisfied with doing church. We need to do mission. That's what we're involved in. We are the good seed. We are the heirs of the kingdom. And it is God who expects us to be engaged in this. And you're saying, well, that sounds daunting. That sounds like too much of a commitment. But let me put it to you, and we'll talk about this when we actually get to the sermon, because I'm not preaching yet. (laughs) That... uh, It's time that we re-engage in a particular. Not that we haven't, but that we intentionally re-engage with God's great commission. And so in the process, we begin with our values. And values are both prescriptive and descriptive. In other words, they are things that we ought to aspire to, but they are also things which describe who we are. And if there isn't some of both in the values, then we are in trouble. And so our values are about our roots and our aspirations. Our history is an important part in tracing the hand of God in this place. And that was one of the great things that we experienced on the Thursday evening as we heard uh, those who've been around a while share how God has placed his hand in advancing the work. And we would not be here experiencing the privileges that we have except for those who have come before. And then, of course, we want to culminate in a vision, a simple statement that will help us to focus ourselves, that will set the target for what God is calling Huron Chapel to be and to become, that will guide every ministry and program of Huron Chapel, that speaks to the heart of Huron Chapel, we say this resonates, this inspires me, this guides me, and that allows each member to answer the question, what is Huron Chapel about? How would you answer that right now? Well, let me look it up in the bulletin, because I do see that that it's there right now. Not terribly useful, because uh, do you carry the bulletin around with you on the weekday? No, I didn't think so. (laughs) Okay. And so this is really important in uh, formulating our vision. And, of course, it is grounded in the values of Huron Chapel, our past, and guides us in striving towards our present and our future. And remember, if you can't remember it, you can't use it. So that's why we are engaged in the process of vision renewal. And it's a good process. process. And the elders are giving leadership in that at the moment, and there'll be opportunity over the succeeding weeks to share more broadly and to have input into this. But uh, the elders right now are in a key position, of course, and are serving as our focus group for this. So this all relates as well to what the Lord Jesus said to the disciples long ago I will build my church and the gates of hell will not against it, right? And you'll recall a couple of weeks ago that uh, we saw that this is a prophecy that we know is true. So in uh, the time when the Lord Jesus was speaking to the disciples, there was just a handful by 40 AD, there's maybe 10,000. And now there are about 2.2, 2.3 billion people who are following Jesus. Okay? And so this is clearly an indication of the Lord, work that the Lord is at work doing in our land and beyond. Now, you may say, well, I will build my church. So if you've been reading through the the Bible, what you find is that in the Gospels, the church is mentioned only two times, right? Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Did Jesus invent the term? Where did he find this word? And this will help us, I believe, to understand what it is that we are doing right now in this place. It will center us. What are we doing here? And some might think it's a religious show. Come to hear the preacher. Come to enjoy the singing. Come because somebody dragged me here to meet my friends, to keep peace in the family, to earn brownie points, to get to heaven, to get comforted or challenged, to serve. Do any of those uh, options sound like things that flit through your mind (laughs) or through the mind of somebody else in your home? So somebody suggested that there should be a no-excuse Sunday. And so just let me read to you what this no-excuse Sunday would be like, because this is the kind of preparations that would be made. Cots will be placed in the foyer for those who say Sunday is my only day to sleep in. There will be a special section with lounge chairs for those who feel that our pews are too hard. Oh, look at that. We, we have nice, comfortable chairs here. Eye drops will be available for those with tired eyes from watching TV late night Saturday. We will have steel helmets for those who say the roof would cave in if I ever came to church. Blankets will be furnished for those who think the church is too cold and fans for those who say it is too hot. Scorecards will be available for those who wish to list the hypocrites or maybe evaluate the preacher. So, what is your motivation for being here? And this is where we need to understand why the Lord Jesus chose the word church. Ecclesia is the actual word that's behind our English word church. Because Jesus was rooting his statement in what God had done all the way back at Mount Sinai. When he had brought the children of Israel out of captivity. And there the people were called together in a great assembly in order to witness... The word and the works of God. That was the reason they were there. And so Jesus is declaring here, I and the Father are one, and so understand that the ecclesia that I am establishing is in continuity with this, but it goes far beyond that that the assembly of God is the assembly of Jesus, the Son of Man, who comes with all the glory and authority of the ancient of days. So, where is church in the Old Testament? Well, it actually appears 96 times in the Greek Old Testament, Ecclesia. And you say, I never saw it there. That's because when we read in English, we read assembly or congregation or something of the like. That's the wonder of English. It has so many... Different words that mean the same thing. But let's understand that the key event is what happened in Mount Sinai. When the people gathered and they were in horrible fear because they were witnesses to the tremendous power of God. And that was the uh, uh, face, as it were, that God presented to them at that point. Hebrews chapter 12 picks this up and says, You have not come to a mountain. That is, we who are now in Jesus have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and, and storm, to a trumpet blast, and to such a voice speaking that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. When we sing, Our God is an awesome God, let me tell you, that's what they were experiencing. They were terrified. But let's understand that we have come in Jesus to a very, very different face, presentation of God. It was necessary to understand the holiness of God, the power of God, the awesomeness of God. But that lesson, having been learned, we now need to hear the lesson that we have that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ particularly. But you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn. That's us, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, this is the assembly, the congregation, the church, the ecclesia of Jesus. And as God called the people together at Mount Sinai, so Jesus is calling us together to meet with God. Because he has promised to meet with us where even two or three are gathered, the promise of Jesus that he is present. And God often speaks to us when we gather together. Amen? And let's understand that Jesus is always present, and sometimes we don't get much out of church because we forget that we are coming to worship him rather than to get our way or to get our strokes. We get on the same page by bringing Jesus with us. How do we do that? We do that by lining ourselves up with him. Do we understand that we are gathered here before God, that God is our witness? Now, you are not spectators. Now, that's how you think of it, right? Because you have some guy up here preaching. Bonnie, you don't? Good. Or some others up here singing. But let's understand that we are all worshipers of the one true God, and that God is our witness. Shall we not seek to please him with our words, our thoughts, and our actions as we gather? So I want to focus on this issue of witness, because witness is really, really important. When we talk about memorials or souvenirs, these are all witnesses so Dave Rogers, are you here? Did you bring that tall bird with you today? No tall bird today. Cause when I saw him walking with that walking stick, that what kind of a bird is it? Egret? Yeah. And where's that from? I'm sorry? From PNG. From Papua New Guinea. And so that is a souvenir. It's a useful souvenir, as it turns out. But it's a souvenir that Dave could tell us stories about it, but also tell us about P&G, right? And let's understand that we have souvenirs when we go on a trip somewhere. We have war memorials that recognize the sacrifice made by those who were in the front lines. A graduation diploma is a testimony to your graduation, I hope. <laughs> a driver's license. Wouldn't it be terrible if every time he got stopped by the police, Lynn, if, if, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs> that, that, the, that the officer will say, well, ma'am, I don't want to see your driver's license, I want to see you drive. (laughs) You see? And the driver's license is a testimony, a witness to your ability to drive. Your wedding photos are a testimony to that great celebration. Our lives, in fact, are full of witnesses and memorials. In fact, we cannot live without witnesses. Because you see, most of what we know or believe, we know through witnesses. The testimony of others. Every time you turn your GPS on, you are depending on the witness or testimony of somebody else. Have you ever had fun with your GPS that keeps directing you and you are going there? I would drive in Richmond, B.C., and when I would need to buy something because I'd forgotten it or I'd run out of something, I'd find a Walmart, you know. Walmarts are pretty well ubiquitous everywhere. And, <clears throat> and uh, the GPS would point me to a Walmart that was never there. I tried it once, didn't work. And I ended up going up a hill by a river into a place where there were not many houses, certainly no large Box store. You see, but our lives are just full of witnesses. In Scripture, we are told that there cannot be a verdict against someone except that there be two or three witnesses, you see? In court, what do they look for? They look for witnesses. The judge wasn't there. The, the lawyers weren't there. The jury wasn't there. But what are they looking for? And so, even the instructions for our stove, we had to pull those out because the fuse went on a new stove. It was just circuit breaker, but... Anyway, the instructions for the the stove are a witness that tell us about how to operate, directions to a party, making an appointment, lessons at school, and on and on and on. These are all witnesses, you see, because we do not know these things directly. We know these things through somebody else. Think about it right through your day. So when we're thinking about spiritual things, we sometimes hold ourselves to an unrealistic standard, not recognizing the importance, the power, the essential nature of witness. And so our connection to the unbroken witness about Jesus that he was crucified, he died and was buried, and that he rose again. We have an unbroken witness that runs for 2,000 years and still counting. So why should we accept the witness of others concerning Jesus? Because honestly, there is no other way to get hold of this. As I said, there is no other way to get hold of most of what we believe. You see? Now, who believes that the earth is a sphere? Oh, you do. Well, how do you know that? Somebody told you, right? You can't know it directly. And that's one of millions of examples. So, what have we discovered ourselves about following Jesus? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But right now, we'll just go to John chapter 20, in which the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ, has appeared to a group of disciples. And of course, Thomas wasn't there, and so when they said, we have seen the Lord, Thomas says, hey, unless I can put my hand in his wounds, I'm not going to believe you. And so, the next time the Lord reveals himself to this group, Thomas is with them, and he falls to his knees, and he says, my Lord and my God. And then, The Lord says, Blessed are you for believing, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, because the importance of witness. Understand why the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus are so important to believe. More believable than most, because you see, no one knowingly lays down his life for a lie. Would you? No. You might lay down your life if you knew it was the truth. But even then, it'd be hard. But for a lie? Are you kidding? And so we begin with this statement, and we open ourselves to uh, the witness that God has to us, but also then the witness that we receive ourselves of God at work. And so we are told in Acts chapter 1, that there will be a witness that comes through us that will go to the world. You will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And by the way, this is the pattern that we as a congregation ought to follow, that we as individuals ought to follow. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, what we call missions very often is about the last two about Samaria and the ends of the earth. But let's understand that in Scripture, everything is the mission of Jesus. And we are called to be witnesses. Jerusalem, here's our Jerusalem. Our Judea, the surrounding area. Samaria, which is cross-cultural, and to the ends of the earth, wherever it takes us, even to PNG. And what we see is that in the early church, they would gather and they would give Testimony. They would gather as the ecclesia to speak about what God had done through them and how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That's what we read in Acts chapter 14. It was a testimony meeting. They gave witness. Now, we are pretty limited because we have reduced the time that most of us spend together to 1.5 hours. Okay? It used to be not that long ago that we also had an evening meeting and that we often participated in a midweek meeting. So we had a lot of opportunities that we still built in. Now we have to be intentional in extending beyond the 1.5 hours that we meet together on a Sunday morning. I want to tell you about Yeshu Darvar. This is a gathering of thousands, tens of thousands, in the city of Allahabad in India. And there we have a wonderful movement of God. Yeshudavar means the royal court of Jesus. They don't use the word church because that's seen as a Western thing. But it's the, West, it's the royal court of Jesus. And the meeting, they have meetings starting Friday evening right through to Sunday. And uh, lots of opportunities. But the Sunday morning, of course, they have lots of opportunities. But it runs about three hours, all right? We're not used to that. And I'm not saying we should go there. You might have to bring a lunch. (laughs) But what I am saying is that when the meeting is, is moving along, they do some singing and then they say, now it's time for testimony. And so out of this throng, you have people who come running up to the front to line up in the hundreds to do what? To give testimony to what God is doing. Friends, we still need to do that. Let's create opportunities every time we meet to speak about what God is at work doing because God is at work. And the more we are attuned to it, the more we will see the reality of the presence of God. When we come together in the name of Jesus, we are testifying just by being here about Jesus and his resurrection, because we have gathered since the beginning on the first day of the week, because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. So we are witnesses just by being here, you see? And we bear witness in the ritual acts of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We bear witness to 2,000 years of Jesus keeping his promise, I will build my church, and death has no power to restrain it. Jesus is the head of the church, and we are his body. So you see, it's more than just coming up and showing up to meet your friends or to hear the preacher. This is about gathering in a sacred assembly to bear witness to God who is at work. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we have this wonderful description of who we are. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may, what? Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Does that sound like witness? Sure does. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are the ecclesia, the community that has been called together to bear witness to the reality of God at work. So there is the witness to us, and there is the witness through us. We are witnesses to his past, to his story, what we have seen, the past, and we are part of the ongoing story of what God is at work doing. And let me give you just a list. This is my list, the selection I could have gone on for hundreds and hundreds of examples that I am aware of, that I am a witness to. I am a a witness to the life change in Bob and Gail Moulton, to the character of children and youth raised in Christian homes, to the overwhelming generosity of God's people, to the courage and confidence in Jesus in the face of outright persecution. And you know how... Uh, Several weeks ago, I'd asked you to pray for our below because he was imprisoned on false charges. Praise God, he is out on bail. Continue to pray for them. And to the inner working of the Spirit, correcting and stirring me up to get beyond myself. That's a good thing. I am a witness to the life change of entire villages set free from the bondage of superstition and idolatry. And I wish I had time to tell you the expanded stories that are behind this. But we're sitting trying to understand what God is at work doing in this movement called Yeshu Darvar. Because you see, they don't ask people to adopt the the, uh, nomenclature of being now a Christian, but they are followers of Jesus. They still call themselves Hindu, which they are culturally. But Uh, David Phillips, who is our informant, he says, Just look. Look in any of the homes. You will see not a single shrine, not a single idol. And if you know India, you know how rare that is. But that's because Jesus has swept through, cleansed their hearts and cleansed their homes. And we have a profound witness in our country that we don't even recognize our biblical ethics are so deeply embedded that we don't understand that the stability that we have. For example, the gift of universal education, the rule of law, modern science, hospitals, human rights, all have their roots in the gospel. These are all benefits that we take for granted. I can give you lots of reading on this if you would like. Visual. Mangalwadi, a friend of mine in India, has written a book called The Book That Made Your World, a very fine book, or the writings of Rodney Stark about the impact of the gospel. I am a witness to the life change through Jesus of Matt, a young friend, to the comfort that God gave Mary in her marital distress, to the grace that God gave Harry lying on his deathbed to the healing that Jesus gave to Rob's wife to the hope that the words of Jesus brought to an oppressed people group in India. The list is endless. And so we come back to the scripture that we read. And you'll see how this letter written by John begins. That which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. He's saying, we're eyewitnesses to this Jesus. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And I believe this witness. How about you? We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also fellowship with us. That is, partner with us. We are being invited into this. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write that. What? We write this to make our joy complete. Don't you celebrate when others... Join us in recognizing the transforming power of Jesus. But let me ask you what your witness is. And yes, we're getting to the end of the sermon. Are you happy? Are you falling asleep yet? You need a blanket? No? You're all right. Okay, we'll keep going. I could preach for seven or eight hours, to tell you the truth. Overseas, I will uh, often do uh, teaching sessions that run from first thing in the morning until uh, dark. And I think... Paul did that once, and he had somebody fall out the window. <laughs> I don't want any of you falling out the window or off your chair. Okay. But, but you see, there are some people who maybe are here who are saying, but church ain't much, and my experience of the church has been disappointing. Could that be you? But you see, maybe the focus is wrong. Could it be that it is your experience with Jesus, the Lord of the church, that is too limited? Because it is not, friends, about the church. It's about the Lord of the church. And that's what turns everything around. Could it be that we're stuck at the doorstep, at the entrance, and we haven't gone far enough? Now, do you see that picture? Isn't that a beautiful picture? You see that beautiful cascade? That's Dunn's River, Jamaica. I was in Jamaica a few years back for our World Partners International Gathering, and they give us one day off, and they let us uh, do something a little bit uh, uh, that engages with the beauty of, of the country. And at Duns River, they have zip lines, seven zip lines in all, including one that runs pretty well, I don't know, I'm going to say half a kilometer. It is a ride. Okay, I'm taking that based on the testimony of others. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain why, okay? I'll explain why. And see, this is how you start. Okay? Okay. And that looks a little bit challenging. Yes. So, Lynn, would you do it? No. Okay. Well, I was getting into the harness, all right? And then I thought, I better ask the guy who's putting the harness on me, what is the weight limit on this? (laughs) I won't tell you what it is, except it was less than my body weight, and I couldn't leave a leg behind her or whatever. (laughs) Anyway, so I'd already paid my money. So Sandra Chart, and some of you will know her, she was my uh, director of world partners of our missions program as EMCC. And I said, Sandra, I have an assignment for you. (laughs) I said, get in the harness. (laughs) And Sandra, being a veteran missionary 25 years in Brazil, she dutifully did it, even though she gulped too. Anyway, she did it. She did it. Took the ride down. Now, one of the ironies was that a big strapping fella from Ecuador, athletic, his name is Alberto, he got up here and he chickened out. Buck, buck, buck. We teased them. (laughs) So here's little Sandra who does it, and Alberto who doesn't. (laughs) And you see, Sandra testified to what a thrill it was. And what did Alberto testify to? Not much at all, because he didn't get past the entranceway. So it could be this morning that your experience in Jesus hasn't been much of a ride because you haven't gotten off of the platform and trusted him. And it is a ride. And I've been vowing that one day I will get down to a weight where I... I'm not there yet. I still have about uh, 20 pounds to go. So, anyway... If you want to know what my weight is, uh, maybe we'll have a Sunday school fair and you can guess what my, my weight is. <laughs> and, and, and I suspect that uh, we'll make a lot of money because you won't guess my weight right. But anyway, <coughs> it's more than what you think. In any case, but let's understand, friends, that the testimonies are there in the millions upon millions The witness who said, my experience of Jesus is better than life itself. It has sustained me. Going back to Harry that I was referring to on his deathbed, he would say to me, Pastor, sing with me. I love him better every day. I love him better every day. You know that little chorus? Close by his side, I will abide. I love him better every day. And so I'm inviting you to step out, to not only receive the witness to you, but also become part of that ongoing story. I've been on this journey since 1964. Some of you have been in the journey maybe a little longer, maybe some a little bit less, but let me tell you, it's a ride, it's a ride. Nothing better. It makes everything better. So friends, what is God saying to you? And how are you going to respond? Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us so much that you gave your best. And you want us to experience your best. You want our joy to be complete. And so, Lord, this morning is an opportunity when you, by your Spirit, are speaking to us because we have the witness of Jesus. We have the witness of throngs, of millions upon millions. We have the witness of the Spirit wooing us and calling us. And, Lord, that you would be pleased in this place where we are gathered in your name to speak speak to us and to move us another step forward in love and obedience to our Lord and Master. For Christ is the head of the church, and we are his body. Amen.